I'm Hal Humphreys, and this is the Sound of Pursuit podcast. I'm joined today by Mike Spencer. Um, Mike is someone that I call a friend. Uh, we haven't ever even spent any time in the presence of each other, but he's a friend of the magazine. He's written for us a number of times. Mike's a former journalist and a private investigator in the Bay Area. And um, when I've been to California for any reason, I've called Mike for advice and counsel on some different things. And he's always had really um, useful things to say. Um, you know, the thing about Mike is he, he says in his podcast, I can be a pain in the ass who knows a good story. I'm not objective, but I am fair. Um, Mike, can you give us a little bit of a background on the case that your podcast is about uh, and how you initially got involved in that case? Sure. Uh, how I initially got involved in it was as a fairly newly minted private investigator in 1998, I had an ad in what us old timers call the yellow pages. I think that's where the ad was. And I get a call one day from this woman who wants to meet because she explains she has a child custody matter that she wants to be investigated. And I meet with a woman and the assignment is she has a daughter who died of a methadone overdose up in Victoria. And there's a little girl it's her granddaughter, who at the time was six years old, who is the subject of the custody battle. And she explains to me that she is trying to get custody of this little girl from the girl's biological father, a man by the name of Gary Murphy. So initially, I'm very sympathetic, and she lays it out to me that Murphy is an ex-con who's into sex, drugs, in rock and roll and she wants to get custody of the little girl by finding dirt on Gary Murphy. So that's all how the case begins. It, it took place, I, I met her at a Mexican restaurant across the street from my old apartment building in Oakland and it's uh, something out of Hollywood, it's pouring down rain and I go in there to meet with a client and she's just sucking down a margarita at two in the afternoon. So that's how the case starts. That is um, that I, I can picture the entire the entire scene, and I've got like the image of Elliot Gould walking into the to the bar to meet the lady at lunch. That's awesome. Um, I want to play just a, a real brief cut from your uh, podcast, so we can kind of get a feel for it. And this is just a little bit over a minute long, forty seconds or so. I have dwelled on the cold case murder for the last twenty two years going to police and the media, alerting the FBI, and now doing this podcast. That's because I'm a witness in it, not a recipient or direct witness, as attorneys might say, but as someone on the ground floor of the Murphy saga, if the killers were ever arrested and put on trial, I'd be on the stand, and I would welcome it. This podcast, which I'm calling The Gary Murphy Assassination, A San Francisco Cold Case, is about my search for the facts in his brutal killing. A few themes run through the case. Vengeance, drug addiction, anger, hopes for justice, including my own, and even love and redemption. You know, Mike, you say in, in part of your podcast, in part of this first episode, it's strange the things we cling to and what clings to us for a lifetime. 
um, this case became personal for you. Maybe it even became an obsession. Can you tell us why? There are a lot of reasons. I, I think it's just sort of a, a swirl of justice, wanting justice, wanting a form of revenge against my former client. So I think those are the, the topics that jump out at me. And if I can just go into the case a little bit more was, I'll, I'll give you just sort of a thumbnail of it was the client, the grandmother wanted me and eventually uh, an associate of mine who I brought in wanted us to find enough dirt on Murphy through surveillance or other means that he would have his parole violated and she would easily just get custody in the case. Our surveillance went on, wasn't really yielding much. She wasn't doing anything that was overtly incriminating. And then one day this grandma client just verbally erupted at myself and my former associate. And we told her, look, we just can't work with you. You're impossible. So three months go by, and then I open up the San Francisco Examiner on a, a June day in 1998, and then I read the little news brief that Gary Murphy has been assassinated in broad daylight at a halfway house out in the avenues near the ocean at uh, 11.30 in the morning. He was gunned down by someone. So immediately upon reading that, I contact my former associate and together we go to San Francisco police to pretty much give them our case file and lay out our involvement in the case. We're being transparent. And it's a good thing that we had each other to corroborate our accounts because maybe it would have gotten a little bit hairy for either one of us. Um, you know, in your, 30 years as a guy who interviews people and assembles their stories for a living has have you found throughout your career obsession can sometimes be a positive driving force for you i divide my professional life from my creative life when you're working on a case in criminal defense and civil you know where those lines are drawn you know what's going to play before a jury or what won't and let's face it, in those civil and criminal cases, we have budgets. So there's not a lot of room for taking your case above and beyond a budget. If you do it, well, guess what? You're just losing money. Right. So I find the obsession tends to come in more into my creative pro projects like a, a book or a podcast or writing, because then that obsession is, is what fuels your project. I like the, the the way you kind of define it as, you know, you've got your work life and you've got your personal life and your personal life, you can, you can allow the obsession to kind of take over. But in, in business, I mean, I've had this conversation with a number of people over the years that are, that are involved in the criminal justice world. Um, and some of them, I will call them true believers and I love them and I love the work they do, but they don't consider budget. They don't consider the need to earn a living. And I mean, we're, we're doing this to earn a living. I mean, we love it, but we're doing it to earn a living. Yes. We're, we're, we're business people. And, and again, I would, 
I would advise anyone, especially if you're going to work in the in the legal arena, know where that line is drawn. And right. again, if if we can't run our business successfully, we're not going to have a business. So. Right. And if we don't have a business, we're not there to help other people. Correct. Right. Um, you know, at what point does having an obsession become a negative force? When is it too much? And I'm thinking of, you know, even in our normal workaday private investigator life as criminal defense investigators and as civil investigators, we deal with some pretty hairy things and that can pile up and pile up and pile up on your shoulders. Um, if you get obsessed with something, when can it be detrimental to your your business, your mental health, and those kind of things? I haven't had it be detrimental to my business, but I think where it takes a toll emotionally is in cases where you see what something has done to a victim's family. I always remember a, a case of a young man. It was a civil case we had against the bar. He was a 20-year-old kid who was DJing at the bar that night. And unfortunately, this bar had a real history of violence and problems at it. This 20-year-old kid got in the middle, was trying to protect a woman from a fight. He was shot and killed. So it's a horrible case. But what I remember the most about it is just the hurt in his parents' eyes, especially his mother. And those types of things you do not forget. And maybe you don't uh, carry it on your surface, but I, I think those types of things you've probably experienced that i think any investigator who's done it those types of things rattle around in your head and maybe weigh on your shoulders they're under your your skin they're in your subconscious yeah and i think um anybody who does this kind of work even if even if you're working on kind of general surveillance cases where there's child custody issues involved like what got you involved in this case in the first place all the way up to you know capital murder cases I mean, you know, we, I've kind of settled on the notion of unnecessary human drama being the driving force for our work. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, the, so many things are caused by unnecessary human drama, but we witness that. We bear witness to it. We sometimes have to testify to it. Um, but, you know, when you when you see the pain that a family goes through and not only victims like I worked on a case in Texas a couple of years ago where a young man shot and killed his father. He was being charged with murder. And there was a really, really, really strong case for self-defense in this case. But the damage that the entire family felt, loss of dad, the kid facing and then actually going to prison uh, after the trial, you get you get sucked into that world for the trial, for you know prepping for the trial and doing the trial. Um, and you can get kind of sucked in with obsession about things and you don't want to let people down and you just, it's a lot to carry sometimes. I think it's the reason how it's why I don't do criminal defense exclusively. I just couldn't, it's very heavyweight stuff and I just couldn't live that every day of the week. So that's why I balance it with civil cases and some locates and occasional surveillance just to, to keep a little bit more 
even killed. Right. That makes perfect sense. Um, getting back to your podcast, um, without any spoilers, kind of what is the what is the general takeaway from all of this for you, from the case itself to digging back into it with the podcast? Um, did you get any kind of resolution, answers, redemption? Are you still hoping, waiting for it? Kind of what what's the and I don't again, I don't I'm not looking for a spoiler, but what's what's the general takeaway for your from your point? The redemption of sorts has been what I've uncovered. And again, this is something that I've gone back into. I started looking at it in, I think, you know, 2019, 2020. So the redemption is just that I got off my ass and actually did something. <laughs> you know, I put in the, we put in the public records requests and really started uh, to investigate. I have an assistant, Angela, who helped me out on this. So that's sort of been the redemptive part. The cases, he was assassinated in broad daylight. And I can't really call it a cold case because what I uncovered was police know the gunman. They know the getaway driver. I obtained a copy of a search warrant that names my former client and her boyfriend at the time was possibly involved. So we know it's really not a cold case. We know who did it. The mystery, and, and this, I just want to digress a little bit. When, when we turn on our TV news or any news, what do we see? It's cold case this, cold case that. Help us solve this. Help us solve this. Help us solve this. Well, in my case, Gary Murphy was not a sympathetic victim. He was not a blonde, pretty woman from the suburbs. He was an independent biker with a drug use history. He did not have an army behind him. So the greater mystery in this case, and I think in my, my second episode, I talk about this. It's like, where did the case go wrong? I talk about, I use a, a football analogy. I say they have the, the prosecutors, or rather the detectives, have the ball down at the one yard line. They're going in for the score. How did it go wrong? Did they make a bad play call? Did they fumble? And that's what I'm looking for. Usually police and us, we all want to be applauded for our good jobs. But in this case, I still don't know what happened. Was there an evidentiary screw up? I do know that apparently when the case was passed around uh, in 2012 or 2013 from one detective to another, they couldn't find phone records. There was phone records had been obtained, but apparently they weren't passed along or preserved in the case file. And the investigator who picked it up in about 2013 or 2014, he even said, I basically had a box of interview tapes dumped in my lap. Mm. So there was no chronology prepared for him. So part of the mystery is where did the case go wrong? Why couldn't they make an arrest? Or why couldn't they charge? They had a lot of information, not only from my former partner and I, there was an informant in the case. There was an identification at the scene as to the gunman. I do know that my former client, right after this happened, she moved back to Canada for about six years. So I wonder if that monkey wrenched it too, because they couldn't interview her they didn't because she was out of the picture so there's still a lot of unknowns i've done two episodes and i now need to really 
if I'm going to have a third episode, I'm going to need one of those former cops to talk, or I'm going to need the informant in the case to talk to me. I, I do keep in touch a little bit with uh, Gary Murphy's daughter, the, the girl who is the subject of this whole investigation in the first place. And that, that's another thing I think I want to mention is a deriving force in it is I come from a big family. There are seven kids in my family. Gary Murphy had about four siblings. Uh, Gary Murphy's parents have passed away. So part of my motivation is, is trying to find out some answers for his daughter and his siblings. As someone from a big family, that it just leaves a big hole for them. So that's, that's why I'm doing this too. Love it. Well, Mike Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, you know, sometime in the next 12 months, Hopefully we'll be able to travel freely around the country again after this COVID-19 business. And um, you are on our list of places to stop by and visit. Um, thanks again for being here, Mike. Oh, thanks for having me again.